The following podcast is part of the MindBodySpirit.fm podcast network. Meditation doesn't have to be a solo practice. Meditation is more fun with friends. Looking for a way to drop in and hang out at the same time? Join us online at Omega Institute for a meditation party with self-proclaimed meditation nerds Dan Harris, host of the 10% Happier podcast, Sabene Selassie and Jeff Warren. This three-day retreat will stream live from Omega's Hudson Valley Campus, May 17th to 19th. Don't miss the party. Reserve your spot at eomega.org slash party today. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Support for this show comes from the Spirituality and Health Annual Holiday Gift Guide, a special section in the November-December 2016 issue featuring inspiring and unique products. Reach our conscious community and reserve your advertising space today. Email Tabitha at spiritualityhealth.com or call 231-933-5660, extension 305. From Spirituality and Health Magazine, I'm Rabbi Rami, and this is Essential Conversations. Our guest today is Marianne Williamson. She's an internationally acclaimed author and lecturer with six books on the New York Times bestseller list, four of them reaching number one. Marianne has appeared on a variety of national television shows, including Oprah, Larry King Live, Good Morning America, and Real Time with Bill Maher. Her newest book is Tears to Triumph. The Spiritual Journey from Suffering to Enlightenment. An interview with Marianne Williamson is featured in the July-August issue of Spirituality and Health magazine. Marianne, welcome to Essential Conversations. Oh, thank you so much for having me. My pleasure. You and I have talked before. Lots of people know who you are. But I wanted to start with some background information that you don't normally talk about. And hopefully this, this will just start us off in a different direction. I mean, you're one of the most innovative and important voices in contemporary spirituality, but you started out as a little Jewish girl from Houston. So how did you get from there to where you are now? Well, all I am now is a big Jewish girl from Houston. I grew <laughs> up, but you know, I don't, I don't see being a little Jewish girl from Houston as, as something like, wow, that's so different from what you are now. I'm, I'm proud of my Jewish heritage and and I'm proud of my Judaism. So I'm now just a bigger Jewish. Do you, <laughs> do you reconcile like the Course of Miracles stuff and the kind of spirituality you teach now with Judaism? Or is it more of a cultural connection no, with? No, 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 no. A Course in Miracles is not a religion. Right. It deals with universal spiritual themes that are at the core of all the great religious systems. And in my, in my book, In Tears to Triumph, I don't know if you've seen, but there's a whole chapter on Moses and the story of the Exodus. I talk about Buddha, I talk about Moses, and I talk about Jesus. Those are the three main spiritual transmissions I talk about in the book, because all three deal with the issue of suffering. Buddha said life is suffering. God sent Moses to rescue the Israelites who were suffering. Uh, as slaves under Pharaoh, and of course Jesus suffered on the cross. So in all the great religious systems, 
the issue of human suffering is central. So my, like many people, I have found that my religious um, relationship to my religion has only been deepened um, by being a student of A Course in Miracles. A Course in Miracles has given me um, a more expanded sense of connection to the divine. Now, that is inherent in all the great religious systems, but I wasn't taught it. I'll give you an example. My daughter, who was bat mitzvah, received a Jewish education that was so much deeper than the one I received. And if I think that, I think that if I had received that, and then it makes sense because after World War II, you know, I, I was born in the 50s. And so even though I was raised in a conservative Jewish home, I just didn't receive the kind of in-depth Jewish education that my daughter received. And if I had, I'd probably be a rabbi today. Um, but I don't think that was my destiny. I think all's good. But I think that, that at the core of all the great religious systems are the same universal spiritual themes. And so I certainly see no disconnect or dissociation. And um, as I have gotten older, and I don't think this is about the Course in Miracles. This is just about my, my experience of life and I think getting older and world conditions. If anything, my, my connection to Judaism, and particularly my connection to Israel, has only increased. See, I got the sense that, um, I mean, not, not officially uh, being a rabbi, but my, my sense from your work is that you are trying to reveal what you're calling these universal truths, uh, but to do so in a way that, that honors every tradition that you're touching on, but certainly your own. Um, did you help your daughter see those? No, no. My daughter was just given a traditional Jewish education. She actually said to me, so there wasn't any kind of, I, you know, she certainly learned metaphysics from her mother. She certainly learned A Course in Miracles principles from her mother. But my daughter has a very strong connection to her Judaism. She told me when she was about 11 years old, we were in, living in Michigan and she turned around on the stairs one day and she said, and she, and I guess she got this from her religious school. I don't know where she got it. She turned around, she looked at me very seriously and she said, mommy, I'm more traditionally religious than you are. <laughs> so, but once again, she's been raised with, there's no conflict here. Truth yeah, is true. Yeah. Truth yeah. is truth. Yeah. So let's shift gears a little bit and take up uh, some of the themes in the new book, Tears to Triumph. So in the book, you take on what you call the culture of depression that yeah. is paradoxically addicted to happiness. Indeed, the, it's, this is my opinion, but it seems that the entire American experiment is based on I mean, this inalienable right to the pursuit of happiness. Is happiness the problem or the way we pursue happiness the problem? And how we define it. Oh, the, yes. Very good. Thank you. What I talk about in, in the book is Buddha said one of his Four Noble Truths is that things of this world can provide at best but temporary happiness. And we are our current, particularly our economic system. This was not inherent in the founding of our country. It's not inherent in those alienable rights, inalienable rights concept. It's inherent, however, in how we have developed as a consumer society. We are predicated on the idea that you can figure out what would make you happy and go after it. So everybody thinks if I have the car, I would be happy. If I have the relationship, I would be happy. If I have the house, I would be happy. If I have the money, I would be happy. So, so much of our time these days, everybody's on the make, trying to make it happen, happen, grasping for that, that we think would make us happy, struggling for that, which we think would make us happy. Then, even if we achieve it, as Buddha said, the, the, it will only bring you temporary happiness because nothing of this world has deep enough roots to sustain you, as the Course in Miracles would say. So then once you even get there, 
and you get the house or you get the money, at some point the fairy dust is going to rub off or, as you, as you would say from religious terms, the idol will fall. And then you're in despair because what you thought would make you happy didn't make you happy. So that has become a, a, a paradigm in terms of the American we define that too often as the American dream. That should not be the American dream. The American dream should be that we can be, not just do, but also be anything we want to be. But the idea that we have to do a certain something in order to achieve a certain material result and that somehow that will buy us happiness is flawed, it's dysfunctional, and it is a setup for despair. And that's why I talk about the culture of depression. So many of the things going on in the world um, whether it has to do with climate change or out-of-control ISIL or uh, the income inequality. I think if you're looking at the world today and you're not depressed, I'm not sure you're really looking. So psychic pain is like physical pain. It's here for a reason. It conveys a message. And the, the fact that people are so anxious, the fact that people are so depressed, should not be seen as a, as a disorder to be, to be pharmaceutically eradicated or suppressed. Rather, the, the anxious and the depressed among us should be seen like canaries in the coal mine. But what's happening is that the owner of the coal mine is saying something's wrong with the canaries. So I think the fact that so many people are in psychic pain today simply means that something is wrong. And we yeah. need to face what's wrong and change it. So, so let me ask you to, to sort of underline that line about the canaries, because I think that's so important. The, the sense I got from the book was that it's almost a setup by a consumerist and Oh, psychopharmaceutical industry that, okay, after I get all the stuff that I've defined that you know, is going to make me happy and I'm still not happy, then the whole system turns on me and says, well, now there's something psychologically wrong with you. Now you need these drugs. They will make you happy. They will make you, uh, they'll make the consumerist part of you work. And you're saying when this, when you get there, this is the sign that something is deeply flawed in the very nature of our pursuit and our understanding of happiness. Yeah. And it should be a warning, but instead we get sucked into taking the drugs and then going after more stuff. Am I, am I fair in that assessment? Well, yes, but the nuances of course are important. I'm not making a blanket condemnation of all psychotherapeutic drugs. Uh, right. You know, clearly there is schizophrenia and serious oh, sure. bipolar, et cetera. So I, I do want to make that clear. What okay. I'm talking about is what I think of as a spectrum of normal human suffering. Um, you and your career, I and mine, anyone who's clergy, anyone who is a serious counselor, we, we are up close and personal with people who go through the turbulent waters and the, the times of life that we have to navigate that are painful. Whether, let's say somebody has a, uh, a divorce, uh, a bitter divorce, it's painful, but it's not, uh, it's not a mental illness. Uh, the 20s, people going through their 20s, often, you know, it's hard, but it's not a mental illness. You have financial hardship or, or a professional failure. This is hard, but it's not a mental illness. People, you're grieving someone that you love who died. It's hard, but it's not a mental illness. And yet, so often today, we have this epidemic of, of antidepressant use in situations where people are simply going through these hard times in life. And we are, we are giving, in many cases, very serious drugs that should only be applied for serious mental illnesses um, in situations where people are going through those turbulent waters of, of life that are natural. And if we do not, and you certainly, you know, I'm not telling you anything you don't already know, given your, your own career, you know, if, if, if people don't learn how to navigate those times in life, I think we are infantilized. And we, there's, there's something lacking in, in our spiritual, our emotional and psychological development. You can't really navigate life if you can only navigate the happy times. And I don't even think you can effectively navigate the happy times if you don't know those, 
those those deeper regions of, of despair that are that are part of the human experience and part of what teaches what we need to know in order to live lives in which we are more responsible. We do not take life for granted. We learn how to forgive. We learn mercy. We learn the lessons of love that often come through our tears. Why do you think it is that we are so, maybe I don't know if the word is poorly trained, but certainly we're not prepared to navigate any of this. I mean, we're, we're sort of prepared with the expectation that everything is going to be great. And if it isn't, we have to find someone to blame. And if we have to blame something in our brains, then we'll, we'll take chemicals to deal with that. Why, why isn't our training as people more, oh, I don't know, honest? Well, it's not like there's a small group of people sitting in a room trying to figure out a, how to mess us up. Uh, I was hoping there was, then we could find them to blame, yeah. Oh, I think, when we, you know, we do have a problem. I think a lot of the over, over the epidemic of over-medication of Americans, the uh, over-prescription of antidepressants, and certainly, particularly, how many people are told to expect to be on these for the rest of your life, definitely is connected to the fact that we do have a market-based healthcare system. If you have a universal healthcare system, such as in England, there this, the system is invested in your getting off medications that you no longer need. In a marketplace, there's an investment of the system in keeping you on. That's definitely something for us to look at. But in terms of the overall paradigm of how we've developed, I think we all have to take responsibility. Once you're an adult, you don't blame the quote-unquote system for having told you wrong. We just all have to take responsibility and take a very adult, responsible look at what's going on and take responsibility for our thinking and responsibility for our behavior and responsibility for what we teach our own children. Do you think people are naturally inclined to do that at this point, or is that something they have to learn from a teacher such as yourself or, or someone else? Well, I think that there is a more mature spiritual conversation that is emerging and has been emerging for a while in our society. I'm one of many voices, many clergy or, or, or any other spiritual counselor or anything like that. Um, yes, in my experience, I, I think there's clearly a spiritual awakening. Um, but at the same time, we have an intensification of, of forces of what you might call darkness and greed and and distraction. You know, we have a culture of distraction. We have a culture of numbness. We're all being bombarded constantly, all day, every day, with ultimately meaningless stimulus. And, and it is up to the individual to awaken to the fact that this will suck your soul out of you. This will leach your life force. And I think many people, if, if you look at all the people who are coming back to a genuine spiritual life or looking for that or meditating or praying or, you know, whether you, you think of these things in religious terms or spiritual terms or secular terms, it, does, it doesn't matter. I think more people are coming to understand that a life lived outside the, the, the light of love and forgiveness and mercy and compassion is a life of random chaos that brings suffering to ourselves and others. And that information is there for anybody who wants it. And what I do with this book is to talk about how those things apply very specifically to the very sad times in life that all of us go through. So in the book, Tears to Triumph, you really deal with, with three voices in particular, the Buddhas, Moses, and Jesus, uh, as oh, these great teachers who can help us understand this, this nature of suffering, to move through suffering, to, you know, through tears to triumph. And I'm wondering if you could summarize the message that you receive through each and that you're really transmitting to the world uh, in this book. Yeah, I just want to say that they're more than teachers. The great religions of the world are all spiritual transmissions. And within that space, whether you're talking about, you know, Christ's 
and the cross, whether you're talking about the covenant of Israel, whether you're talking about the enlightenment of Buddha, you're talking about a space of consciousness that that is available to us. Now, the great religions of the world used to be the primary inspirers. They used to be the primary comforters. And because of their own malfeasance and abdication of their own moral responsibilities, in certain cases, institutional realities and the density that that, that, that often um, becomes an obstruction to the genuine religious experience. About 100 years ago, a lot of that became a baton that was passed to psychotherapy. But psychotherapy, when it does not include a spiritual dimension, fails to to reach its goal of genuine healing of the heart, of the spirit, of the deep existential pain and, and yearning that we all have. And so in the last few years, that baton has once again been passed to psychopharmacology. This is whose answer basically is to numb, to seek to numb, suppress, eradicate the symptoms. So I think many people are now looking once again to the great spiritual traditions to say, is, is, is my inspiration there? Is my healing there? So what fascinates me is that in all the great religious systems, and as you said, the three that I, I, I concentrate on there are those three of Buddha, Moses, and the, the story of Exodus, the covenant of Israel, and, and Jesus, is that the idea is that in all of these, the religion points to the reality of human suffering. Buddha said, said life is suffering. God sent Moses to deliver the suffering Israelites who were slaves in Egypt. Jesus suffered on the cross. So the story is that outside the light of our connection to God, we do suffer outside the connection of love, outside the connection of living the lives in, in, in alignment with the lives we are here to live of mercy, of right living, you know, the, eight, the eightfold path that Buddha talked about, the Ten Commandments that, that Moses gave to the Israelites, the infinite mind of mercy and compassion that Jesus embodied. Outside that light, we do suffer. And but in all of those stories, the suffering is what happens until God plays his hand. So realization of suffering was the beginning of Buddhist journey to enlightenment. The suffering as slaves in Egypt was just the beginning of the story. Then the 40 years in the desert. And of course, Jesus suffered on the cross. And then that led to the resurrection. So the point is not the suffering. The point is what happens when God then answers our suffering, whether you call it enlightenment, nirvana, promised land, resurrection, self-actualization, enlightenment, or inner peace. The point is the spiritual journey that often we awaken to in the midst of our suffering ends should we allow our minds to be healed by spirit in a place which is beyond all suffering. And that's, I don't just say in the book, don't do this. I say, look at what the great religious and spiritual traditions have to say, which is the true healing of the mind. A Course in Miracles says that psychotherapy and religion at their peak are the same thing. Hmm. So is this an act of grace, you think? Yes. That, yes. Yes. So what kind of, so this and there's no cause for that, right? And there's nothing that we can do to say, hurry up, God, do this for us. Or. Absolutely. You know, when, when, I mean, and you look at all, in, in Moses, it's the, excuse me, in Buddha, it's you have to lift that eightfold path. You, you have to address issues like right living and right speech and right effort and right intention. In the Ten Commandments, God says through Moses, these are, these are the commandments, these are the, the rules of the covenant. You don't just go out and do whatever. You think about how these things, you know, the Ten Commandments are extraordinarily modern. 
if you if you look at them through a contemporary lens, you know, as my mother would say, some things never change. And of course, with Jesus, if you don't forgive, you cannot be happy. You know, somebody said to me, you know, Marianne, people who are depressed can't just think happy thoughts. That, that person didn't understand what I would mean by happy thoughts. You cannot see yourself as a victim and be happy. You cannot withhold forgiveness and be happy. So the point is that we can't just fight depression. We have to cultivate happiness. Just like you can't just fight disease, you have to cultivate health. And the cultivation of happiness means cultivation of right living, i.e. righteousness. You know, whether it's Buddha with the Eightfold Path or God telling the Israelites, this is how I want you to live. Or Jesus saying that love one another because outside that is all darkness and pain. So we are called to the, to the consciousness and to the behavior which, which ensures happiness and outside of which suffering and depression and despair are inevitable. All right. So that's, that's very powerful, very clear. That is a great place to end because unfortunately we are out of time. So thank you very much, Marianne, for, for this conversation. It was just fabulous. I appreciate it. Thank you so much for having me. Oh, our pleasure. My guest today was Marianne Williamson. She's author of Tears to Triumph, The Spiritual Journey from Suffering to Enlightenment. An interview with Marianne is featured in the July-August issue of Spirituality and Health magazine. You can learn more about her work on her website, marianne.com. Again, Marianne Williamson, thank you so much for being with us on Essential Conversations. Thank you. Support for this show comes from Spirituality and Health's annual holiday gift guide, a special section in the November-December 2016 issue and on the uh, website, featuring inspiring and unique products. Reach our conscious community and reserve your advertising space today. You can email Tabitha at spiritualityhealth.com or you can call her at 231-933-5660, extension 305. Essential Conversations with Rabbi Rami is a project of Spirituality and Health magazine. Visit spiritualityhealth.com and subscribe to the magazine in either print or digital formats and download the iTunes app for this podcast. Essential Conversations is produced by Ezra Baker and our program coordinator is Alma Tassi. I'm Rabbi Rami. Thanks for listening. What is it you really want in life? No matter what you've been through, you can still achieve it. I'm Sandra Ann Taylor, and in my Energy Activation podcast, we'll explore the science of manifestation, and I'll give you specific techniques to shift your energy in order to make your dreams a reality. I also do live energy readings, and you can be a part of the show by emailing your questions to me at sandrataylor.net. Join me on the mindbodyspirit.fm podcast network or wherever you get your podcasts.